0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello, and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
0: This week, what is the next act in Putin's theatre of war?
1: Plus, how important is Gallo's humour?
0: And finally, why have we stopped whistling? First up, For this week's cover story, James Forsyth writes about Putin's dangerous dramatics on the Russian-Ukrainian border, and where they might lead. James joins us now, along with Paul Wood, who writes in this week's magazine that Putin's bluff may be backfiring. James, we are recording this at uh, 11 on Thursday morning, and uh, at the beginning of this week, we learned that American intelligence believed Putin could invade Ukraine within 48 hours, That hasn't happened, at least at the time of recording. And uh, although NATO say they see no signs of de-escalation on the ground, do you think that the threat of invasion is starting to ease or is it hard to say?
2: I think what the US was trying to say is that Russia would have the option of invading from Wednesday. And I think what Putin's military build-up has given him is that he has a whole spectrum of options now. I personally think a full-on invasion is unlikely in the grounds that Putin knows that that would create the most unified Western response. I think you can see Russia trying to do other things. Note, for example, the Duma motion, calling on Putin to recognise the two breakaway republics in the Donbass. Look at Putin saying in his press conference with the German Chancellor Olaf Schultz that what is going on, I mean, it's an absurd claim, but what is going on in the, in the Donbass is genocide. Look at the claims this morning on the Russian side of, you know, mass graves or Ukrainian atrocities against Russian speakers there. He is clearly trying to give himself pretext for action if he chooses to take it. I think that we do not yet know what those actions will be. I think it is one thing that is worth noting, though, is that even if the Russian military does not move across the border, what the build-up has done has done to do significant damage to the Ukrainian economy. It has become far harder for Ukrainian firms to get insurance for their exports. There has been a flight of capital and people from Ukraine. And he has destabilised the country and forced the Ukrainians to start talking about NATO membership as a dream rather than as something that is a near-term prospect. So I think what we see here is that Putin has given himself a set of options. I think we cannot yet know which of those options he will avail himself of. And I would defer to Paul on this, obviously. But I think that I am also quite persuaded those people who say that Putin himself hasn't yet decided which option he intends to take.
1: Paul, you also write about Ukraine and Russia this week in the issue. And you, you make the point in your piece that the Russians know that everything they do can be seen by satellite. So how much of it do you think is a performance sort of designed to deliberately unnerve the West?
3: What struck me this week, talking to real experts on Russia and Ukraine, military experts, uh, intelligence people who are well sourced in both countries, is how utterly divided they are on what's going to happen. You flip a coin, uh, it's 50-50, there will be an invasion, there won't be an invasion. But the people that I've spoken to for the longest uh, about these things, uh, one is an ex-KGB officer, for instance, all say it's theatre. It's theatre. Putin does everything with an eye to the foreign audience, but above all to the domestic audience. Uh, And this is a probing attack, essentially, as James um, wrote in his piece. You, You stick a bayonet in and if it's soft, you keep going. And if it's hard, you retreat. Uh, of course, the Russians know that everything is seen by satellite. And we had a the Armed Forces Minister earlier this week saying, well, we've got combat enablers, we've got bridges, we've got medical supplies, we've got food, we've got fuel. All of that makes the in- invasion credible and, in his view, likely. Well, yes, of course, if a bluff is going to be credible, it has to be carried off convincingly. And the Russians know that everything is seen. Th- this is Putin seeking opportunity out of crisis. He makes the crisis and as James was saying he's he's already won in that the Ukrainians are suffering. Speaking to people in Kiev, they are a lot less hysterical about the prospect of war than the Western media because they feel they've been living with this since 2014, the country already invaded and occupied. And they are quite cross with Western governments for upping sticks and moving to Lviv in the west of the country. They think that is already to give Putin a victory. They wish people would be a little bit less hysterical and a little bit tougher in facing down the Russians. But the opinion I get from Kiev is that they are ready for this. Uh, They are prepared to fight. They don't have things like air defences. They'd certainly like some decent air defences. But they think they can inflict... A really bloody butcher's bill on Putin and for that reason alone they don't think he will march on Kiev much more likely is an ambiguous intervention with mercenaries that can't really be pinned on the Russians with a provocation something in the Russian speaking east of the country that leaves NATO and Western countries divided and scratching their head about what to do, which is what Putin has succeeded in doing all along. Everybody is scratching their head.
1: But Paul, you you also make the point that the bluff could backfire for Putin. What, What do you think that would look like if it were to backfire?
3: People call Putin a master tactician, but a poor strategist. For instance, the interference in the US elections, what did it really buy him in the end, I think brought him a lot of trouble. He could easily blunder into war here. Uh, Once the first shot is fired, things get very unpredictable very fast. And that that was the fear of a lot of Ukrainians, including quite senior people I spoke to this week in Kiev, that somehow this was all start to uh, unspool. For instance, if the Russians were to use their superiority in aircraft and start bombing, there are a good number of nuclear power plants in Ukraine. What if one of those is hit? What if the Americans decide to retaliate in some form? outside of Ukraine. Of course, there are no American forces, all this would be left to uh, to Ukrainians. But this could get unpredictable very fast. And, and in that sense, it could backfire on Russia. The Russians have a lot of cash. They've got, I think, 600 billion in foreign reserves. I think uh, sanctions wouldn't bite immediately. One Russian ambassador famously said, we don't give a shit about sanctions. But long term, if it caused Europe to turn away from Russian energy dependence, if it meant that Russian oligarchs and their children couldn't do their Christmas shopping in London anymore, that would really start to bite. Uh, and the Ukrainians said to me this week, we may lose the first battle, but this would be the end of the Russian Federation. They could not survive this. Uh, and that's a, a rather strange thing to say when they have so few arms compared to Russians, but they, they're confident about winning the the war in the end, in that sense.
0: James, in your piece, you say that the West's use of intelligence during this crisis has been unusually public. Uh, is there a risk, do you think, that uh, if, if invasion prospects are hyped up by intelligence and then it, it doesn't come to pass, that there will be accusations that Britain and America have overreacted and and future risks of invasion won't be taken seriously?
2: Yeah, look, Putin would benefit if he were to de-escalate now to go down the diplomatic off-ramp he would benefit from a kind of boy who cried wolf effect. He would be able to say, oh, look, the Americans and the British, you know, they exaggerated all this. And he would hope that other countries would be less inclined to heed those warnings next time round. I think it is worth remembering that in the tale of the boy and the wolf, there is a wolf at the end of the story. And that I think is important. I also think one of the other things that is why this intelligence is being used in such a public manner is that they are trying to use intelligence to change the course of events. Now, that is a relatively unusual strategy. But the, the logic here is that, you know, that the they are convinced that the Russians are considering kind of false flag attacks, some provocation that they then claim justifies Russian troops going in to protect uh, Russian speakers or to protect these two breakaway republics. And I think the the danger for the West there is that in the 72 hours it would take to work out what had happened, Putin would have created new facts on the ground. And I think the reason that is why London and Washington have been so keen to highlight the risk of this kind of false flag approach, because false flags are far less effective if people are looking out for them.
3: I feel a bit queasy when I hear people talk about the intelligence, the intelligence, the intelligence. We haven't been told the nature of this. Is it signals intelligence? Is it a human source? We've been down this road so many times before, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the Russiagate allegations. In one sense, you don't need the intelligence. There are 130,000 troops there. But again, the Russians know that we can see that. I would like to see an American official or a British official give us a little bit more about exactly the nature of this intelligence and why they are so certain.
1: Paul, can you talk a little bit too about the Wagner Group? You mentioned them in your piece.
3: Well, the the Wagner Group are the modern incantation of uh, the kontrachniki, which I mentioned in my piece back in in, uh, 1999. I was in Chechnya, and the Russian way of war there was to have three rings of troops. The very outer ring would be the heavy artillery, and uh, if there is a war... Um, against Ukraine people in Kiev should fear Russian heavy artillery because it's the old Soviet doctrine of absolutely flatten things with artillery first and then send in the infantry then you'd have a ring of troops which were interior ministry special forces who were there to stop the army who were the inner ring from running away the army were all reluctant conscripts and that being the case the Russians tended to use mercenaries contract soldiers or contractniki as they were then called this time around it's the Wagner group or Wagner group which tells you a lot about the way um, the Kremlin is run, because the Wagner Group is, is run by a guy called Putin's chef, uh, an oligarch who literally started off with a hot dog stand in St. Petersburg, uh, rose to prominence as the person who ran the, the Putin's favourite restaurant. And uh, the way it's been run in Syria is that essentially they get a piece of the action, they get a piece of the oil business for furthering Russian military aims. And a very significant piece of news, again sourced to in- intelligence people, but it was a story from Reuters saying that Wagner has sent uh, somebody with um, th- that it's used in the past, somebody who used to be a Russian intelligence officer, to eastern Ukraine to do what? We don't know, but the implication is to carry out some kind of false flag attack, to foment trouble. It's much more difficult for NATO to respond to some shadowy mercenaries that, that the Kremlin will say with a wink it knows nothing about than tanks rolling across the border. And I think this is the kind of intervention if there is going to be one we should expect.
0: And James, you said at the beginning of this podcast and and also said in your piece that only a full on invasion of Ukraine would result in a concerted Western response and that anything less would expose Western division. What are some of the reasons do you think behind this disunity between different NATO members regarding what a response to escalation should look like?
2: I think they are both temperamental, strategic and and structural. I think that Washington and London take the most kind of hardline view on this. Then I think that the French have believed that, you know, you should be more prepared to talk with Putin about a new European security architecture. Germany obviously has its own energy interests, you know, heavily dependent on Russian gas and also the most developed economic links. With, with Russia. And I think a kind of temperamental difference. Look at how Schultz on his visit to Moscow in the aftermath of that was saying, well, look, it would be absurd to fight a war over... Ukraine's membership of NATO, seeing as that isn't going to happen anytime soon, you know the British are far more reluctant to say let's take NATO membership off the table because they feel that that would be essentially encouraging Putin to behave in this manner. You know, you mass a huge amount of troops on the border, and then you demand that everyone negotiates with you. So I I think you do see those differences. I think that there is a big difference from Crimea in 2014, though, which is Crimea in 2014 before. Russia annexed it there had been no real western discussion about what the approach would be on sanctions this time around the Biden administration has really got everyone talking and thinking about this now look it might as Jake Sullivan complained to congressional democrats this week it might take kind of constant coaxing to to push Germany into the right place on this stuff but I think these talks on sanctions are far further advanced than they were in 2014 And I think there is a realisation that if you wish to deter Russia through sanctions, those sanctions have to be sufficiently stringent. Now, I mean, Biden has done another thing that European leaders need to do, which is that Biden has levelled with his public. that you know, these sanctions would impose costs on them, that, you know, it would raise energy prices, it would compound the current inflationary moment. But, you know, if you are going to deter Russia through the threat of sanctions rather than the threat of of military force, then those sanctions have to be severe. And and you can't escape the fact that they would impose some pain on those who were imposing them on Russia as well as on Russia itself.
1: Paul, just to finish on, you've, you've got this great quote in your piece where you speak to a Ukrainian political consultant who tells you that Putin's at the peak of his happiness, he's the king of the world. What do you think matters most to Putin at the moment? How he's seen on the world stage or how he's perceived back at home in Russia?
3: Uh, there's another saying that, that all Russian foreign policy is domestic policy. Um, I think we should be careful here that, that just because we don't like Putin and he is an awful person uh, and, and Russia is a kleptocracy, I think John McCain, former senator, the, the late senator John McCain said it was a a gas station run by a mafia masquerading as a country. Just because all that is true doesn't mean that he is... Without argument on this. He has a point when he looks at the map and says, uh, when the Soviet Union ended, we had strategic depth. We had a short front line to defend, essentially a few hundred miles where the Eastern Bloc met Germany. Now we've got thousands of miles and it would be thousands more with Ukraine. Missiles in Ukraine or Ukrainian membership of NATO would put Moscow just a few hundred miles from an armoured thrust. This sounds paranoid, but it is a justified argument when you look at Russian history, and that is why Putin has some measure of backing for this. Also, the fact of Russian speakers outside Russians' borders. Now, not every Russian speaker in Ukraine is a supporter of Moscow. The political consultant, you quote, is actually half Russian, half Ukrainian, and his Russian mother votes for Ukrainian nationalists. She has no wish to be ruled by the kleptocrats from Moscow. But still, the Russians have arguments, and... If there is to be a way out of this, I don't think it's merely sanctions. We have to listen and engage with them. And maybe the way out is the Minsk agreement, which the Ukrainians don't like, but it's what Macron has been pushing this week. It does give you a road map out of this mess. And perhaps just simple belligerence isn't, isn't the answer of how to deal with this. It's recognising that Russia has real interests here. Thank you, James. And thank you, Paul.
1: Next up, the BBC's new comedy-drama, This Is Going To Hurt, is based on the best-selling book of the same title by trainee doctor turned comedian Adam Kay, and it depicts some truly gut-wrenching scenes with a touch of gallows humour. This week in The Spectator, Andrew Watts writes a defence of making dark jokes in serious situations as not only a stress relief exercise, but a genuine necessity for anyone getting through the day. He joins us now along with Ed Patrick, a comedian and NHS anaesthetist, whose new book, Catch Your Breath, about working in the NHS during the pandemic, is out now. Andrew, in The Spectator this week, you've written about gallows humour and its place in the workplace. The peg being, of course, the TV adaptation of Adam Kaye's book, This Is Going To Hurt. Why do you think we accept black humour in some professions, but not others?
4: Well, that's really what, what uh, I was trying to write the article about, because I've always been interested in slightly dark humour and basically working out what the rules are, because it seems to be uh, in a state of flux at the moment. Uh, I mean, a couple of weeks ago we had Jimmy Carr. We all know that jokes about Jews dying in the Holocaust are completely banned, and he was saying, oh, so are jokes about Roma? And and there seems to be some debate about that. Uh, and it all seems to be in a state of flux at the moment, and I was trying to work work out exactly what the rules are, because... We seem to go along with medics making really quite dark jokes at some points. But other professions, policemen particularly, uh, those jokes don't seem to seep out into the general consciousness. And I was just trying to work out what the answer was for that was.
1: Did you come to a conclusion?
4: Well, I think the reason is that um, we really need doctors to be dispassionate. Uh, and that's probably one of the reasons why they make good comedians, when you are treating a patient, you have to acknowledge the fact that they are merely lumps of flesh. And doctors do things that, if anyone else did them, would be uh, assault. I, I mentioned this in an early draft of the article. Two, 20 years ago, I had a lethal jo- dose of potassium chloride. Now, if anyone else had given that to me, that would have been murder. Uh, but because the doctor was doing that, it was because it was part of an operation. And I, I think Somehow we 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 understand that in a way that we don't need other professions to uh, look at us as lumps of meat. In fact, it's a bad thing when they do. Um, Ed, you are a comedian and also
0: a doctor for the NHS. Do you think Andrew's right that that medics get away with a particular type of dark humour, and and do you also think that that gallows humour is actually a necessity for being a doctor? <laughs>
5: So I'm, so I'm saying, yes, that I'm a, I'm a doctor right, and also a comedian, so I'm an anaesthetist uh, as well. So just touching on what Andrew said, I think, I'd like to think we see people more than just a, a lump of flesh, especially when we're talking to them and, and we do see them as human, but I totally get the point. He's, you know, sort of trying to, you, if you become too emotional about every single thing, you suddenly might become incapable of being able to work. So You know, I do things that, you know, no one else would do. And, you know, if if you did out outside of a medical profession. So, you know, I I give drugs to purposefully disrupt body's physiology so that people become unconscious and become paralysed so that their operations can happen, for instance, Um, which in any other walk of life would probably be frowned upon. Um, I think even as a GP, you might get referred to the GMC for that sort of behaviour as well. Um, But obviously it's to do it to enable something to happen. So you're kind of right at that cutting edge of, Taking people, you know, from being conscious, looking after themselves to putting them under and then bringing them back again. And so you're constantly, you know, walking that fine line and things, you know, can go wrong. You prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. And so, you know, when you're constantly with that tension, uh, it naturally leads itself to having releases of tension when you have the moments of downtime. And I think that's what where it comes from in medicine is that, you know, you can see, you know, some terrible things. You might have to deal with the things on day to day. And I think in professions like that, you know, people will find uh, relief in dark humour uh, or such like.
1: Andrew, is there a long tradition of medical black humour?
4: Well, I think the longest running s- sketch shows are medical reviews. And that tradition has been there since the Victorian age. And I think it... It's becoming more and more open, as everything is. The sort of jokes in in, uh, This Is Gonna Hurt are things that I know medics have been uh, exchanging with each other for many years now. Uh, It's only now that it's in BBC on primetime.
0: And, Ed, do you think, uh, when you do your stand-up comedy and you share your experiences on on stage, are there any uh, topics that that actually you think are actually too dark or too much to... A joke about for an audience or do you do you actually get the impression that, that the audience uh, uh, loves to have it all all laid out for them I think it depends on perspective
5: really more than anything else I mean you can you can joke about anything if it's coming from your personal perspective in your uh, what, you, what you have to say about it essentially so I don't think there's any particular off-limits in terms of of medicine uh, but if for me I talk for pers- from a very sort of personal experience from my side of things and generally how you know situations i 've ended up getting myself into or whether i've been an idiot and things like that, and you know the situations can vary depending on how that has happened so i don't think there's particularly off limits it's, it depends on how is it how it's directed in that and the context you put it in and you know the attitude you have towards that as well and what essentially what what is it you're trying to say
0: and uh, does your comedy routine ever come into your day job. So I don't know, if you're trying to put patients at their ease, for example. It's
5: certainly, you know, being a comedian, I definitely feel makes you a better doctor in, in, a, in a strange way, in the sense that it's, you know, a lot of medicine is about building rapport, building relationship Uh, With patients, getting them to trust you and being able to put them at ease, especially when they're going to have an operation, something like that, because it's quite a stressful situation. So, if you are able to do that and help people trust you and go ahead, then it makes the experience all the more, all the more better in that sense. And so, little things at the right time, you know, and that that might vary depending on what it is. You know, if it's if it's an adult, you know, it might be someone who who will be willingly want to you know engage in humorous talk and you'll get that and instantly from the first consultation but also as a you know if it's a child you know you might spot that they've got spider-man slippers or something and you know you're a massive spider-man fan and you know pretend you had web coming out of your wrists and stuff and so you suddenly get talking about tom holland and you know it's you go down that direction too so it's definitely something that helps you it helps the helps you and helps the patient
1: and Andrew, talking of perspective, as well as writing your piece this week, your wife, Tanya Gold, has also written about Adam Kay's, well, the, the BBC depiction of Adam Kay's show. But I think it's fair to say she's, she saw it rather differently. What, what was her take on it? And, and sort of did, did, you, did she not find it as funny as you did?
4: Well, no, I think it was because uh, Adam worked in uh, obstetricians and gynaecology. And so all the people that he was talking about uh, were women. And Tanya was objecting to him uh, treating women like uh, lumps of meat, but I think it was just because that was the work he happened to be doing. Uh, so I, I, I'm prepared to defend him on that. And um, Ed, I just wonder actually, as a, a stand-up, have you
0: seen any change in the reaction to your comedy after the the pandemic? Have you had to have you had to sort of switch up your 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 style of things at all? with people uh, less open perhaps to dark humour given the, the kind of difficult times that we've just been through or actually do they, they, they want it now more than ever? I think that
5: things have changed slightly. I, was, I always wondered when I went back what, would, what it would be like and I'm just starting to get back into a more regular uh, rhythm of it in terms of the shows and actually the audiences are probably more up for it than they were before. In terms of uh, things like that, you know, there's a lot of acknowledgement that pre-pandemic you mentioned you're a doctor and people would be very excited or even during it and they'd be you know banging on pans and clapping outside you acknowledge when you're on stage that they seem less enthusiastic than they did at the time and it's always quite an amusing thing that you know that we've had our time as <laughs> sort of you know having all the claps and things like that um, so there's lots of uh, different angles of it in terms of and uh, that and then I think it's just people are just still interest, as interested, you know, what was it like You know, working in that sort of environment? What What's it like being a doctor like now, you know? And then all these things, you know, the Adam Kay show and, you know, uh, uh, all the other things that are happening with the pandemic as well, Just be, I think people still want to talk about it, but have different perspectives and different angles into it. Because we've all had, you know, a very sort of similar experience over the last two years, Yet yeah, a lot of people still wonder what it was like on the inside and things, which brings me to my book, which is out in May, and uh, it's called uh, Catch Your Breath: The Secret Life of a Sleepless and Test. <laughs> that was a great, that was a great segue, wasn't it? Come yeah. On. Yeah. Well,
1: we were about to <laughs> ask very you about dead. that, but I think you've done it very neatly there. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, whistling can be seen as a bit annoying at best and rude at worst. But in this week's Spectator, Steve Morris laments the loss of everyday whistling. He considers it a way of bringing music into one's life for those who don't own a piano. He joins us now along with whistling world champion David Morris, who has released six albums of his whistling. Steve and David, thank you very much for joining us on the edition. Steve, this week you've written notes on whistling for The Spectator. What exactly does the sound of whistling evoke for you? Well,
6: yeah, I really remember my dad whistling. I mean, and all the men of that generation, there, there was whistling going on the whole time. And, and I heard recently my postman whistling, and it just like, it was like time travel. I went back to the kind of happy days of uh, being out in the garden with my dad or in the shed, and he was always whistling. And I thought, well, I really miss it. I would love to hear more whistling.
1: And why exactly do you think you haven't heard whistling for so long?
6: That's a really interesting question. Why on earth did whistling die out? People stopped doing it because they were doing other things, you know, with the internet and other things coming in. Some people found it whistling and maybe a bit irritating, but there was always a kind of edge to whistling that, that maybe wasn't quite required. You know, whistling was a little bit subversive. It was basically a, a working-class pursuit, and people did it because they, they weren't given violin lessons or, or piano lessons. But the one thing they could do was use their mouth and their tongue, and they could whistle. And so I suppose, in a way, it was just part of a generation that were able to do it, and it was appreciated. And it's not so much appreciated now.
0: David, you are a professional whistler. When was it that you, you realised you had this talent? I started
7: my musical, musical career as a cornet player in a, a village brass band up here in... I live in an area called Saddleworth up in the Pennines. And you probably saw it mentioned in the film Brass Stuff. Quite a lot of that, of that was filmed round here. And it's an area which is steeped in brass band tradition. Each village in the area has a, has a brass band which competes against each other at competitions, etc. So I was, a, I was a young cornet player in, the, in my teens. When I became a better cornet player, I tried to whistle the, the difficult pieces... I was playing on the cornet and uh,
0: after a lot of practice, yeah, I, I thought, I've got a flair for this. Hmm. And were there famous whistlers that you, you used to look up to?
7: Not really. I, I mean, there were. Some, uh, Roger Whittaker, who was a, a, a singer, really, but he sort of incorporated whistling into, his, into some of his songs. He was a very good, very good whistler. There used to be a guy called Ronnie Ronald, who was a big star in the 50s. He used his fingers. Uh, he was a finger whistler. Uh, I'm not. I'm what's known as a pucker whistler. I always need to, need to pronounce that very carefully. A pucker whistler. <laughs> uh, and you've heard the expression, pucker your lips. So, so I, I whistle through
6: my lips.
1: Steve, are you a keen whistler?
6: But do you know, I would love to be, but I just can't. I've never been able to whistle. I've, I've tried on so many occasions, but, the, you know, I'm just not able to do it. So I have to just enjoy other people's, other people's whistlings, unfortunately.
1: David, what's your advice for people who are looking to get into whistling?
6: Ooh, that's a tough question. Well, I I
7: entered the World Championship of Wrestling, which can only be in America, can't it? And I won it. That was a life changer for me, personally. I came back from the States and uh, the British media picked up on it. It was a good story, you know, a local lad from up near Oldham, Lancashire, goes over to America and gives them a good uh, whacking in their own backyard. So I was on lots of TV programmes, the Des O'Connor show, and this morning with Philip Schofield and things like that, Chris Evans radio show. The one show so with that level of exposure bookings started to come in quite briskly so i thought okay i'm going to go for it i was a sales manager at the time so i thought i'm going to pack in take take a gamble and i'll never look back it took what 17 years i've been doing it i've been to america 15 times in concerts new zealand twice spain malta all over europe i've got five cd albums and in the last sort of seven or eight years a new genre has happened for me that is the world of tv advertising and film music you must have heard the TSB Bank ad, which I did on the telly. That was me. Ah. And that was a great campaign for six years. I did the BMW Mini ad. That was... That's a Paul Stone Gallup. That was on the BMW Mini ad. I've done... Uh, some, did some whistling for a movie uh, called The Counsellor, uh, starring Brad Pitt. And uh, Mama Mia, here we go again. I did a bit of whistling for that. Met Benny Anderson down at, Apple, down at, at London. That was a, that was exciting. So yeah, but uh, in answer to your question, I, what, I would advise someone to go into it well, make a CD, make an al- make an album like I did. Take a gamble. It did very well. Then I've got five now.
0: Speculate to accumulate, basically. Steve, you mentioned that uh, whistling uh, has slightly gone out gone out of fashion, and that some people perhaps are. Uh, irritated, uh, irritated by whistling. I mean, you mentioned actually Winston Churchill as an example in your piece, as someone who's, who, who didn't like whistling. But do you think that whistling could make a comeback? Uh, or has the whistle been co-opted perhaps by uh, negative associations, such as uh, associations with the wolf whistle?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's going to make a comeback because as we come out of COVID, see, whistling is a great way of of basically putting two fingers up at life's problems, at, at, at fighting back to the the terrible things that life can throw at you, whistling is just a way of saying, you know, I'm going to get through this. So, so often, you saw, you heard it in the trenches, for instance, Life of Brian, you know, you get this uh, this idea of uh, the Brian on the cross, you know, whistling. And so I think the thing about whistling is it, it signals that life is not going to get you down too much. And, you know, there is not one of us. I, there's not one single person who couldn't benefit from a cheerful whistle in some of the miserable circumstances we've been in.
7: Whistling can be a very, very versatile instrument. I do call it an instrument. There's there's a, a technical aspect, you know, you can do things like flight the bumblebee. Things like that. And it's also very, it can be very emotional, you know. Things like that. It's a lot of writing.
1: Well, David, I'm, thank you very much for a few examples. I was going to ask you what your favourite whistle is to perform. And perhaps you might do it for our listeners.
7: Yeah, uh, I normally finish off a, a performance with, um, a, it was a piece I actually played in, in the World Championship of Whistling. And it's, uh, it's usually played on the violin. It's called Shardass by Vittorio Monti. I'm sure you've heard it. bit of
0: it anyway but uh, that goes down well. <laughs> Stephen, David thank you very much and anyone interested in hearing more of David's work can go to davidmorris-whistler.com and that's it for this week if you enjoyed this episode why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast and if you subscribe today you'll also get a 20 pound Amazon gift voucher just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Lara Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.